Our central text for today is found in 1 Peter 3, 8-22. through 22. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. How is a church supposed to relate to its surrounding culture? How is it supposed to think about it and, and feel about it and respond to it? How is it supposed to relate to its art, its politics, its philosophy of education, its economic policies? How is the church supposed to relate to that? That's an age-old question that every era of the church has had to ask. And if you are a historian of the church, you have seen at least three different versions of how the church has had to relate to its culture. There are some churches that have done everything to stand against it, to, to call out what's wrong with the culture that they see and to offer perhaps an alternative to it, maybe even to replace what they find in culture. There are other churches in different eras who have sought to really try to become relevant to it, to adopt its rhythms and find its language and, and perhaps through all of the ways in which it tries to make itself indistinguishable from its culture that maybe that culture will start to listen. And and yet there's also a third version of that that's really tried to maybe escape from culture altogether, to build a little wall of protection around it and just to become a pure community unto itself. All of those three kinds of relationships to culture have been tried. Maybe you come from churches that have adopted one or more of those over time. But for all of the ways in which they have existed and maybe we've worked for a while, there are some historians that think every single version of that relationship to culture has a fatal flaw to it. 
There's a, a sociologist I've referenced to you before. His name is James Davison Hunter. He works up at UVA, and his argument is all of those three versions of relationship to culture are fatally flawed, but he offers an alternative. He offers an alternative that he calls being faithfully present within the culture. Being attentive to it, really having a keen eye on it, and then being responsive to the needs of that culture, but at the same time trying to be distinctive. Distinctive as what is defined by belief in who Jesus is. That's what he means by being faithfully present. Peter has been writing to a church a letter that we've been listening to now for a couple of months, and those churches have always been seen by their surrounding culture as a strange thing. He calls them exiles, people that might have been born and raised in that place but are still to be considered almost outsiders for what they believe. And Peter himself, in that letter, is trying to help these churches try to figure out how do they relate to their surrounding culture. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, He's operating on the idea that it's not our calling to necessarily revolt against culture, nor is it to retreat into our space and avoid culture from it. His argument is that we're to be present to it, to be faithfully present under that culture. And and that all asks the question, what does it mean to be a strange community as seen by the surrounding community and yet be present to it? Four things he's got in this letter. Four things he's got in this passage. We'll consider it kind of like a four-legged stool. Four legs that you need every single leg in order to be safely planted and present within that community. Four things. To To reckon with a particular moment. To embrace a certain mandate. To adopt a particular manner. And to root yourself in a particular motive. To be present comes down to a moment. A mandate, a manner, and a motive. Let's take each one of those. Start, number one, with the moment. You have to reckon with a moment in order to be faithfully present to your culture. What does that mean? I'm not using the word moment to refer to the idea of time. I am referring to it in sort of the shape that a season brings upon a wider culture. The the stories that it tells, the ideas that it trades in, the, the, really, the, the, the strongest, most influential narratives that it embraces, whether it is aware of it or not. That moment, that, she, that season, it, it exerts a certain influence on the way everybody thinks. And Peter is telling us that though we are strange, we need to reckon with the moment that we find ourselves in. And what I mean by that is that If you're thought of as strange, as they were then, and as you are even now, even in a culture whose DNA has a Judeo-Christian mindset baked into its life, if you're thought of as strange, you're going to be treated of as strange. And we've said that on several occasions in the past. You're going to be held perhaps with suspicion or ridicule. You might even be shamed for that strangeness. And people in that moment, churches in that season, are asking themselves, how do we respond? Because in an environment where you're held with contempt, you are tempted to return that contempt in kind. That as you're being treated, so you're tempted to treat in same way. And, and Peter is saying there is a, a moment that we're all in that has the, te- the, p- the possibility of squeezing you into its mold. And you're not even aware of it at the time. And, and we have to see that. And therefore, he ushers us early on in that passage a warning. He says in verse 9, 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on contrary, bless, for to this you were called. And then later, not a couple verses later, in Psalm 34, he cites it. He says, um, let him turn away from evil and do good. Um, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Peter knows that if you're in those early churches and you're faced with evil and reviling, you know what you're up against. He faced it too. And he knows the natural response that you would start to feel well up in you if you're treated with all manner of malice. If you just remember the moment in Luke chapter 9 when, when James and John are out on a scouting mission for the disciples and they're heading to a Samaritan village and they're looking for somebody to welcome them into their, into their locale and every single village they go to turns them away, says, keep on moving, chump. And James and John come back to Jesus and they say, all of those rejected us. And then, then he, has, he says to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Like, let's treat fire with fire, James and John are asking Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, you will not treat that disrespect with more disrespect. You will not let the moment shape you into the very character you're seeing in others that you despise. That's reckoning with the moment. That's coming to terms with the way in which any cultural moment can shape you. If you're treated like that, if you're going to be treated like that, what do you do? You have to exhibit a strange resistance to treating others as you've been treated if they treat you poorly. The church in every era, whether the first century or the 21st century, is going to be seen as strange. And therefore, you're always going to be at risk of letting that culture push you into its mold. If, if they're out to ridicule you, you might be tempted to ridicule in return. If they're out to revile you, then you may be tempted to revile them in return. Any kind of context that cultivates a combativeness in its people is really able to, com con to contribute to a combative spirit in those who are not supposed to have a combative spirit. He's not saying that we need to relinquish our convictions. He's not saying we're out to renounce that. He's just saying you have to be aware of what this culture can do and you have to rise above the animosity that you experience. You have to reckon with your moment by not being led into and shaped into its mold. Now, for all of the attention that Peter gives to the way in which combativeness is a temptation in a combative culture, and, and don't we see that in our midst? Don't we certainly feel the inclination to return combativeness in kind and to be argumentative with those who are argumentative. I would like to somehow argue also that there's an even more subtle temptation in our world and in this moment that we have to reckon with. You may be very tempted to become combative, but there's another temptation that's even more subtle and perhaps even more pervasive, and that is the temptation to be nice. Nice in the sense of always being agreeable, always being accommodating, never trying to do anything that will... Um, cross somebody or, or disagree with somebody or stir up anything. It's this inc inclination to be nice. Now, to be nice is not the same thing as to be kind. Uh, to be kind is to, to take a definite interest in another's goodwill. It is to want to do right by them at every turn, even if you strongly disagree with them. That's kindness. To be nice, as I'm trying to understand that word, is to do everything you can so that they will like you. That's what it means to be nice. And this culture, 
for all the way in which it encourages combativeness, the antithesis of that, the, the alter ego of combativeness, is this, this appeal to being nice. Sharon Hottie Miller, she's a PhD in theology, and she's, she's written a book called Nice, uh, Why We Love to Be Liked. And she's wrestled often with how she feels that strong inclination at almost every turn to choose niceness over something else. And in her book, or rather in an article that she wrote recently called How Niceness Weakens Our Witness, she says this, After observing the fruit of this false idol in my own life, here's what I've concluded. I cannot follow Jesus and be nice. Not equally. Because following Jesus means following someone who spoke hard and confusing truths, who was honest with his disciples even when it hurt, who condemned the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and turned over tables in the temple. Jesus was a man who went face to face with the devil himself and died on a cross rather than succumb to the status quo. That's what it means to be nice. And that's why choosing to be nice above all things is incompatible with what it means to follow Jesus. And that is Sharon Hottie Miller reckoning with her own moment to realize that that culture can shape you in ways that are totally at odds with what it means to follow him. Which means if you're in this culture, if you are in this moment, then you're in a fix. Because maybe you hate to be combative, which may mean that you're far more interested in being nice. Or maybe you hate to be nice, which makes you far more likely to be combative. And neither of those are working, according to Peter. What's the solution? You've got to reckon with your moment and how it can shape you. But then secondly, you have to embrace a certain mandate. And that mandate actually has two parts to it. And we're going we're gonna to spend just a little time on the first part because we've heard Peter talk to it uh, on a number of occasions. But the, the first part of it comes from just the very first verse. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. And why is he saying, what is he saying to the church? That there's a certain quality of community that you're out to reflect that is an essential part of your mandate, of your reason for being, of, of, of the reason why Jesus hasn't brought you back to himself in heaven already. There is a certain quality of community that is our mandate. It is a, it is a, a love that is born of humility, that binds us together, and that keeps us together. And the reason that that is part of our mandate, that it's so central to our mandate, is that who we are and how we are to one another determines how present we can be to our world. If we do not have sympathy for one another, brotherly love, or a tender heart, or a humble mind, if we aren't practicing what we have to then play out in a wider world, we will never play. We will never be present. Essential to our mandate is a kind of community that exists between us that makes certain things a priority, like that brotherly love and sympathy. But the second part of the mandate is where I want to focus our attention, and it comes there later in verse 15. In reference to how do you face those who are out to harm you, he says there in the run-up to 15, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's your mandate. Two weeks ago, we heard Peter say, honor the emperor. Last week, we heard Peter tell husbands, honor your wives. This week, we hear Peter telling everybody, 
honor Christ and in a certain way. How do you honor Christ? How do you set him apart as someone who is unique and who has a claim upon you like no one else has a claim upon you? You prepare a defense. Not maybe how you think of the word defense. Not, not a defense of yourself, but a defense of the hope that is in you. The word there for defense is the Greek word apologia. And even though it is that Greek word from which we get the word apologetics, which is all about you know, providing proofs and rational arguments to establish the intellectual credibility of the faith, that's not what he's talking about here. This is not um, a, a defense of, of rational basis. It's not a defense based upon eyewitness testimony. It's not a, a defense on the basis of, of uh, textual evidence. This is a defense based upon your hope. In other words, why would someone want to believe in Jesus if, in fact, Jesus were true? That's the definition of the hope. And that's the kind of defense he's out to encourage us to have as a function of our honoring of who Christ is. It's to find our voice and a few words to put that hope into the words. Not eloquently, just honestly. And even as I say that phrase, that, that the mandate that is before us is to, to set apart Christ as holy by, by having a defense ready, that, that may be to you a very thrilling idea. On the other hand, that may be to you an idea that just strikes terror in you. And here's the thing. Uh, regardless of what you think of that mandate, the point is this. All of us are evangelists, in a sense. All of us um, argue for something or are a testimony to something. We're all evangelists. There's a, an old Scottish minister by the name of Thomas Chalmers who, who said this. Every man is a missionary now and forever, for good or for evil, whether he intends or designs it or not. He may be a blot radiating his dark influence outward to the very circumference of society, or he may be a blessing spreading benediction over the length and breadth of the world. But a blank he cannot be. There are no moral blanks. There are no neutral characters. Everybody's a missionary of something. We're all an advocate and a spokesperson of an idea. And Peter is saying to honor Christ is to have an explanation of our hope. Not a treatise, not a Magna Carta, just something at our fingertips to explain why do we want this to be true even though we also have reasons to believe that it is true also. And what that hope is, the hope that we're to have a defense for, it really boils down to having answers for the things that are really equipped to steal your hope. Like your failures and your fears and your sufferings. When it comes to your failures, where is the hope when you recognize how many of your actions are patently offensive to all goodness and mercy and holiness? Where is the hope in the recognition of that. Look, in any relationship that you have, when you violate what is between you, when you have sullied it with any manner of self-interest or unkindness, what is going to restore the relationship? There has to be a humility. There has to be a reckoning. And, and what if you then discover, just as using the relationships you have as an analogy, what if you realize that there are so many choices that you've made that you can't compensate for what you've done and even worse 
all of those choices come from a heart that you cannot change on your own, what then? You have to appeal to no less than the Lord Himself for the pardon of the Lord Himself. And the hope that is in us, the hope for which we make a defense, believes that He has acted to cover our sin, to cover our failures. And what is true of our failures is also true of our fears. You and I have all sorts of fears. We're contending with them at this very hour. And one of the perhaps deepest fears that you and I struggle with, that that runs like a thread through our existence, that that runs like an undercurrent or a a subterranean undercurrent beneath the, the, the topsoil of our lives, is this question, this fear of whether I measure up, whether I fit in, whether I am enough. There's a a British author, his name is Elaine de Botton. He's an atheist. He has respect for religion, but he has no place for it. And he wrote a book a few years ago called Status Anxiety. And in that book, he makes the claim that like no other time in human history have we put human achievement so high that it has become a substitute for God. It is our deity. We live and give our entire being Because we think achievement is our greatest good. And when we don't feel like we're meeting up to our own standard of what that achievement is, we're anxious. And when we think we might have gotten even close to it, we have a contentment, but a contentment that doesn't last. Where is the hope in a a kind of treadmill that you put yourself on in order to gain this kind of status that really remains as elusive as anyone trying to catch anything on a treadmill? Where is the hope? In the same way that the pardon of God through Jesus and the gospel is is what's out to answer our failures, so it is our union with God through Christ that is unbreakable, that is meant to provide for us a status that will not change. A status that says unto us we belong. And that we fit in Him because of what He's done for us. And in that we have our strength Though our status in any other way of measuring it, in any other season of life, will ebb and flow, this status doesn't change. And in that is our hope. Our hope is in the way it responds to our failures, in the way it responds to our fears, but also in the way it responds to our sufferings. We face sufferings of many kinds, physical, mental, spiritual, relational, and in every one of those experiences of suffering, we ask ourselves, where do we find hope in it? When the suffering is out to swallow us up, and where we find the hope is to believe that there was one who entered into it uniquely, who understands it uniquely, and not only endured it, but overcame it. And that's who Jesus is. And in knowing that he endured it, that he overcame it, and he lives to intercede for those of us who are still in it. It doesn't mean we still don't suffer. It doesn't mean we don't struggle anymore. It doesn't mean we don't have any more pain. It just means we're not alone in it. And it also means we actually might have some hope in it too. That's that's the substance of our hope. Maybe a really brief summary of it, but that's our mandate. Our mandate is to, to have just a few words that we come up with our own selves to give voice to the hope that is in us. If anybody ever asks us, that's our mandate. Now that mandate, it's real. 
And it's important, and it's how we are faithfully present to our world, is to be available with that word should the time arise. But there's a slight qualification, a slight qualification that that Peter gives us that actually is the third thing, the third leg of the stool here. Not only do we have to reckon with the moment that we're in and to embrace a mandate that we've been given, but in the fulfillment of that mandate, we have to adopt a certain manner. And that manner comes right on the heels of what he said about the mandate. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, how, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This defense that you might offer is a gentlemanly defense. It is one that has great respect for the differences of opinion on matters of the soul. It is a a kind of conversation that is completely full of conviction. It doesn't sacrifice conviction for the sake of being respectful, but it is utterly lacking in a sense of superiority. It is a willingness to listen. It is a willingness to learn. And that manner of the defense is as much a part of the defense as the defense itself. And all of that sounds wonderful, and all of it sounds so abstract, it's too much for its own good. And that's why I want you to hear a version of somebody making a defense for the hope that is in them with this manner of both gentleness and respect. Some of you may know the name Tony Hale. He was an actor. He was in Veep. He was in Arrested Development. Very humble guy. Uh, I want to let you listen to a clip of an interview that he gave recently with Dax Shepard. Dax Shepard will uh, immediately acknowledge that he has no faith in God, but he certainly has respect for those whose faith is in Jesus. And here, I just want you to listen to this brief excerpt of their exchange and how Tony Hale responds to make that defense ready in the moment, but with the ultimate um, demonstration of respect and gentleness. Now, religion, I am actually excited to have you on, assuming you like talking about it, because I'm generally, vocally, I'm an atheist. We have mutual friends, mm-hmm. Ryan and Amy. Mm-hmm. You know them, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I cannot deny the power of their religion in their mm-hmm. life. It's mm-hmm. so blatant to me. I can mm-hmm. see in Amy that she has Jesus in her heart. I, mm-hmm. I literally see it. Mm-hmm. I personally don't believe in it, but mm-hmm. I see its impact on their life, and it seems very positive. Mm-hmm. So it's fun for me because I often get a bunch of different atheists in here, and we'll mm-hmm. lament about that. And I am always curious to give a voice to, like, what people get out of it for themselves. Yeah, I love to talk about it. I mean, I think I used to be, when I first moved to LA, I think I was very much on the defense about it. I think probably in the past five years, there's been a lot more of an ownership of, Uh because it really is everything for me. It's a huge part of my life. And the way I, for my journey, the way I see it is I, I mean, having the relationship with God and knowing that, a power much greater than myself is with me and walking through this life with me and giving me strength and comfort and someone I can just fall apart to. And right. And knowing that he sees a much bigger picture than I do mm-hmm. is incredibly assuring for and me. Comforting. And comforting to me. And, and it's also just having a presence that challenges me and, I mean, just to forgive people that I don't really want to forgive. Right. And to have a perspective on somebody that is different than that I don't necessarily want, wouldn't choose. Right. You know, like I can think of somebody that I can't stand 
and just being able to see that I have the traits that I can't stand in that person I have in myself as well. Oh, sure. You know, and just those aren't choices that I, I naturally make. And I think with this journey with faith, I always have that reminder. Gosh, it's, 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 when, you, when I'm asked this question, it's very hard. I'm, I don't know if Amy and Ryan can say this as well, but it's hard to explain. Sure. Because there's a presence and just a being that is, is so a part of me. Why is he unafraid to speak? Why is he not flamboyant or ostentatious in his ability just to, to speak very candidly and, and with a certain level of preparation? That, that didn't take anything. He didn't have to go sort of pull out his script and, and find his bullet points. It, it's just there, and he was ready to explain himself in a both gentle and respectful way, knowing full well that he's, he's talking to somebody that, that, that maybe has respect for him but just can't go where he goes. Why is he unafraid? Why, and, and why does he not give off an air of superiority in, in speaking to what has been so central to his existence? That's, that's where we get to the last thing that I think Peter has for us in this passage. Because yes, we have to reckon with our moment, and yes, we have to embrace a certain mandate that is fulfilled with a certain manner, but all of it has to come down to a particular motive that drives it. And that motive, you might say, could be summarized there in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then Peter, in the last three verses of this passage, goes on to talk about some weird, wild stuff about Jesus preaching to the spirits who are in prison and bringing up Noah and the ark and talking about baptism and all of it. It's just so much there. And yet, with a little help from Sinclair Ferguson, let me explain to you where what I think Peter is out to tell us that provides for us the motive that we have to root ourselves in in order to be present. For Jesus in dying, it proved this, that he has power over sin. Because the righteous died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's what it proves to us. And in rising, it shows us that Jesus has power over death. Death could not hold him. The grave could not contain him. And when it speaks of Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison, all you really need to know on that one right now is that that is Peter's way of saying that Jesus is showing himself powerful over the forces of darkness. That that which afflicts us which we scarcely know, in fact, we probably wouldn't want to know it if we could, that Jesus has authority over. And for Jesus to ascend to the right hand of his Father, as he wraps up this passage, that is Peter telling us that Jesus has authority over everything else that is a claim to authority. Why is Tony Hale able to speak with that kind of conviction and candor and gentleness and respect? Because if it is true that Jesus has authority over guilt, over death, over darkness and over all things, then how could we be afraid to speak for him? What good is a revelation, an author named David Dark said, if you don't publicize it? Peter is out to say to us that Jesus' power over all of that, if it is true, how could I be afraid of perhaps offending someone even if they hear me with a certain gentleness and respect? And if it is true, how can I not be humble? in making a defense of that hope that is in me. I will not repay evil with evil because I believe that God has shown me good even in the midst of my evil. 
I will not repay reviling with reviling. Because whatever somebody's out to steal from me, from the words that they use against me, what, I have, what they take from me is nothing compared to what I've been given in the way of forgiveness and reconciliation and an inheritance that will not spoil. And above all, I will not make a defense of the hope that is in me because I'm out to prove my love for him, but because I believe that he has already proved his love for me. That has to be the motivation to reckon with our moment and embrace this mandate with the particular manner that he prescribes. And that's our motive. That's what he drives us to. Brothers and sisters, we've been given a peace that has no equal. And that peace is meant to work its way deeply into us. But it's all meant to make us be able to be available to a world, to be present to it in any way that we can. So I invite you, by way of a certain, maybe interesting application, I want you to think on this Sabbath day, what are, what are three questions that you would be afraid for someone to ask you? Questions that you think you would end up clamming up and not knowing what to say and would end the conversation as soon as it began, what are those three questions that you're afraid you wouldn't have a good answer for as you're out to make the defense of the hope that is in you? I want you to think about what those three questions are and then I want you to tell me. Because we should spend time as a community thinking about that. And then as you go into your week, I want you to reckon with the ways in which you think the culture may be shaping you in ways that you had no idea. But most of all, to believe this, the way in which Jesus is present to us in his word, by his spirit, through his forgiveness, and in his love. It is precisely that sort of presence in us that will allow us to be present to our world. And then we will know what it means to relate to all things. And then we will be faithfully present. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.